On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Now, when I mentioned the word Kennedy, we all think of the pictures on the wall of John F. Kennedy, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and he still you can still see his actual picture in various houses, particularly in rural Ireland. But it's Robert F. Kennedy we're here to discuss today. Um, it was shortly after midnight on June the 5th, 1968, that he was shot at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. And while the visit a few years before that to this country is what we all remember and what tends to get celebrated, his influence on Irish politics was among the diaspora, convincing Irish America of its place in the civil rights movement. And that was very much something that brought him into conflict with some people in Irish America as a movement itself, but it also won him many friends. So let's start off with maybe comparing the, the Irishness of, of John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert. Yeah, I mean, look, Robert F. Kennedy, 42 uh, at the time of his assassination. Isn't that incredible? And unlike his brother, he hadn't yet reached the highest office of the United States, but he was he was probably on course uh, to go there. He was competing for the Democratic nomination uh, at the time of his assassination. And, you know, in a campaign that had really galvanised support from uh, minorities. And Kennedy, uh, Robert F. Kennedy, that is, recalled for his great insistence that few will have the greatness to bend history itself, but each of us can work to change a small portion of events. In other words, a great believer in the collective power. Now, Robert F. Kennedy's direct appeal to a kind of Irish diaspora vote uh, and even his kind of utilising of Irishness in political identity and campaigning, it was nowhere near as significant as that of his brother, John F. Kennedy, before him. But despite that, as we'll hear today, there is an interesting history, I think, in how Robert kind of utilised Irishness to try and bring Irish America uh, into what he regarded as the great movement of a generation. And look, we're talking about Irish America. There's a lot of them. There's 40 million people. There's 40 million people in the United States who claim Irish lineage, multiples of what actually lives on the island of Ireland. And within such an enormous community, of course, there's very different opinions on the world. But Robert F. Kennedy wanted to bring that diaspora into the civil rights movement. Now, everyone always talks about the, the Gilded Age, the, the Kennedy's wealth, the trappings. You, you see the old footage of them out in Hyannis Port in, in Massachusetts. Uh, there was, as you, there was a lot of Irish Americans, also a lot of Kennedys, a large family. And the head of the family was Joseph P. Kennedy, of course, described as a businessman with a lot of varied interests. Mm. But tell us a little bit about their wealth. It wasn't sort of overnight that they got it. No, and it's not its not the great Irish-American, you know, immigrant done good story either. I mean, the Kennedy siblings, very wealthy Massachusetts upbringing, the children of businessman Joseph P. Kennedy and philanthropist Rose Fitzgerald. And their dad really made his money on the, on the, on the stock market as a, a stocks and commodities investor, moved into real estate, and then went on to serve as chairman of the SEC, which was, you know, a, a major achievement. Uh, but it, it was pretty far removed from the Boston Irish childhood of many, you know, primarily Catholic working class Irish American identity forget that in fact our father would even go on to serve as the, the US ambassador to Britain from 1938 to 40 so yeah the, the Kennedy dynasty it's not the immigrants done good story uh, it's not a meteoric rise for these siblings you know when Kennedy is elected president John F. Kennedy that is a lot of the media coverage around the world is like isn't this amazing an Irish immigrant could become president of the United States but actually this was an all American you know business family uh, and, and, and they're born into something these kids Yeah and also John F. Kennedy's of course election in 1960 was highly controversial. It was a tight race, by the way, which people kind of tend to forget now. Mm. And Robert F. Kennedy was absolutely pivotal to that election campaign. It wasn't just a tight race. It was an ugly, ugly race. And Robert really does first come to public prominence, as you say, at that time, campaigning for his brother. The sectarianism and the anti-Catholic sentiment in that election is extraordinary. And conspiracy stuff, you know, absolutely outrageous stuff about, you know, if we have a Catholic president, who will he actually answer to? Who will he represent? And Kennedy has to say, I'm not the Catholic candidate 
candidate for president. I'm the Democratic Party's candidate for president, who happens also to be a Catholic. And incredibly, JFK is only the second Catholic presidential candidate in the history of the United States. And there hadn't been one since Al Smith in the 1920s. And basically, Smith had, had, I think, in part lost out because of anti-Catholic sentiment. So this kind of weirdly reminds me of you know, some of what was said at home here, the old cliche in Ireland in in the days of Edward Carson was home rule is Rome rule. And American voters were kind of very similarly warned about a Catholic president. I mean, uh, on the eve of the election that Kennedy wins, they're told it is inconceivable that a Roman Catholic president would not be under extreme pressure by the hierarchy of his church to accede to its policies with respect to foreign relations and otherwise breach the wall of separation of church and state. What the Kennedys are up against uh, in 1960, is is vicious. It's sectarian. It's nasty, and largely, you know, thanks to his brother Robert F. Kennedy, John masterfully uh, carries out this stunning victory. Uh, Kennedy wins 95. Sorry, in West Virginia, a state that's 95 percent Protestant, they vote for Kennedy uh, in in the primaries, and then Robert, in turn, becomes Attorney General in the aftermath of that election. So, you know, there's a real. Acknowledgement, I think it's fair to say, from JFK that his brother was instrumental in, in, in the campaign. And as JFK says, if I want something done and done immediately, I rely on the Attorney General, my brother. He is very much the doer in this administration, has an organisational gift I've rarely have ever seen And he's described constantly, he obviously gets involved in the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and big events like that. And he's seen as kind of the backroom person. He holds the position of Attorney General, but he's seen as very much the power behind the throne with that brotherly connection. Just to give us a sense of uh, where everyone's happy with this ambitious reputation no, he had. And you know, rather than like the, we always talk about the, uh, you know, the Obama presidency, the Trump presidency, the Nixon presidency. People don't tend to talk about the Kennedy pres- presidency. They talk about the Kennedy administration. And I think what's interesting about that term is maybe it's reflective of the key role of another Kennedy beyond just the president. You know, it's a way of acknowledging Robert's influence in it too. And following the assassination of his brother, a lot of focus very quickly turns to Robert and many who'd voted for JFK, look, unsurprisingly, uh, believed that he was deserving of a senior position, maybe to be appointed vice president. But Lyndon B. Johnson and others in the Democrats, you know, they're not mad on Robert F. Kennedy. They think he might be just a little bit too ambitious as Lyndon B. Johnson sees it. And when Kennedy speaks at the, the Democratic National Convention following his, bro- his brother's murder, there's 22 minutes of cheering and applause. Wow. Now, if there's one thing politicians don't like, it's people clapping for the other guy for 22 minutes. You know? Yeah, and, and uh, there was sort of a sense that, you know, Camelot and all of that, that that JFK at some stage would be replaced by someone else in the family. Even to this day, you'll see catch cries for a Kennedy to come yeah. in. Uh, one of the family uh, at the moment is one of the leading anti-vaxxers, bizarrely enough, uh, for the family in the US. But going back to how he made a connection with Ireland, very strangely and almost puzzlingly, he, he connected up apartheid South Africa and the Irish in his rhetoric. So as senator, he becomes a senator for, for, for New York. And this says something about the Kennedy dynasty. He can't become a senator for Boston because Ted is doing that already, you know, another brother. So yes, he has to run for, for New York. And and this in, a, in, in, in the Democratic Party is like, you know, how dare they parachute a Kennedy into, into, another, into another state? But he enters the Senate and then throughout the second half of the 1960s, increasingly starts coming to the fore internationally. And he, he uses his Irish heritage in much less direct ways, you know, than his brother, John and John and Ted. I mean, the joke about Ted was, how do you know Ted Kennedy is Irish? He'll tell you, you know, almost, <laughs> imme- almost <laughs> a, immediately. A lot. a lot. But he uses his Irishness very effectively. So in, in 1966, he visits apartheid South Africa. Uh, he makes kind of direct and stinging attacks on the administration when he's there. And when he comes back home, 
he gives this press conference and he tells the press, you know, everything that is now being said about the Negro was once said uh, about the Irish, the Irish Catholics. And he becomes convinced, I suppose, of the need uh, to bring that, to bring that Irish community, if you will, in, in, into the fold. And look, that's a valid comparison. I think history would maintain, not necessarily a popular one. And then Kennedy finds himself trying to bring this massive growing diaspora into the fold. Yeah, and we tend to think of the, the grand swell of civil rights in Northern Ireland in the late 60s and then into the early 70s as being something to do with United Ireland or something like that. But it's actually, a lot of it takes its inspiration from the civil rights movement in the US. That's what's kind of interesting. While, while Robert F. Kennedy is trying to convince Irish Americans to pay attention to the civil rights movement in America, Irish people, i.e. you know the Irish people who live in Ireland, had already taken an active interest in the American civil rights movement and I kind of learned tactically from it. So yeah, there was there was perhaps more awareness of the American civil rights movement in, in Belfast uh, than there was in Boston at one point. You know, and Austin Curry, who was one of the, the leading lights of that movement, he remembered it. He said the US civil rights movement had a formative influence on the Northern Ireland campaign. We took our inspiration, strategy and tactics from America. The early movement had strong parallels with the beliefs of, of Martin Luther King. And when you look at that archive footage, as you say, it's not about you know, the constitutional question of Ireland and Britain. They're walking through the streets of Derry and they're chanting, we shall overcome. You know, they're very much inspired by the idea of a civil rights movement. But that's not what would concern Robert F. Kennedy, I suppose. His focus was Boston and not Belfast. And like his brother, he had an extraordinary gift for oratory. I mean, the Kennedys, whatever else you might say about them, they're just brilliant speechmakers. That, that's well known. And a key speech for Robert Kennedy that, that I think is worth mentioning at this juncture in the story. Yeah, look, good hair and good ability to it's speak. Good teeth. <laughs> good teeth, good hair and good good ability to speak before a crowd. That has always carried the Kennedy family along, hasn't it? He gives this amazing speech uh, in Philadelphia before the friendly sons of St. Pat. What a name, the friendly sons of St. Patrick, who are a kind of Irish-American business lobby. Uh, and he tells them, you know, there are Americans who, as the Irish did, still face discrimination in employment, sometimes open, sometimes hidden. There are cities in America today that are torn with strife over whether a Negro should be allowed to drive a garbage truck. And there are walls of silent conspiracy that block the progress of others because of race or creed without regard to ability. And he tells them if is towards it is toward concern for these issues and vigorous participation on the side of freedom that our Irish heritage must impel us. So, you know, utilising this Irishness in a, in, a, in a very significant way, but much later, as I say, than, than his brothers had done it. And uh, I suppose it's worth mentioning that the Irish and black America, they were often seen as um, competitors economically, particularly in the 19th century. So it was very important that he was the person, or certainly one of the people, that brought Irish America into this whole movement and made, just brought the, those two communities together. Yeah, there were some Irish voices that were very hostile to the, the, the civil rights movement and then there were there were other kind of inspirational figures within it. Uh, Mike Quayle from County Kerry, amazing man, civil war, uh, war of independence veteran, uh, went on to become one of the most influential Irish-American voices. He was the head of the Transport Workers Union uh, in New York City. He's actually remembered as the man who shut down New York because he brought them out on strikes. So not the most popular man in New York City. But he would march beside Martin Luther King, you know, and there were Irish Catholic priests, huge amount of Irish Catholic priests uh, who, who, who marched beside uh, uh, Martin Luther King and, and that movement. But I think Kennedy's speech, what, what that amazing speech did, uh, you know, was it managed to bring everyday Irish Americans into the fold and to make them think of their responsibilities within it. And finally, Donald, every Kennedy story seems to literally end in a tragic assassination. We've had our, our, our death of some kind long before their, their prime and that comes across all the different Kennedy families and branches of the family. We know Robert Kennedy, he was assassinated in a hotel. Um, I think his, his body mm. was kind of literally in the kitchen area of a hotel when it happened. Saran, Saran was the, the famous assassin, but, but 
But just tell me about the timing of that and how that was a terrible yeah, tragedy look, itself. I mean, I've always thought the look of the Irish is something of an oxymoron in the broadest sense, a bit like friendly fire or civil war. But in the story of the Kennedys in American politics, there is no look of the Irish, is there? Uh, after the murder of, of Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy says, you know, the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country simply want to live together, improve the quality of our lives and justice for all human beings who abide in Ireland. And within weeks of saying those words, yeah, he himself was dead. So... Yeah, his place in the, in the Kennedy Irish story, it is a very unique place uh, as one focused on the domestic question, I suppose. And this is still a big question that's still asked all the time. You know, what does it mean uh, to be Irish in America? And we'll always ask them, will there ever be another Kennedy in the White House? I think <laughs> it's possible, but it's going to be a long time away. Historian Donald Fallon, thank you very much for guiding through us. Literally a hidden part of the Kennedy and Irish America story. Donald is the host of the Three Castles Burning podcast. Thank you very much for coming in. And- on the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.